Oh, well, greetings, Honourable. Thank you for coming to this evening. An audience with the King. Uh, as usual, I'm dressed as the most infamous monarch in British history. I'm Queen Victoria before the HRT. <laughs> Not really, no, I'm, I'm Henry VIII. And um, people often say, you know, how did you get this sort of job? I mean, that's the whole point of this evening. In the evening, I could normally just talk about the history of the Tudors and that sort of thing, but you've heard it all before. Tonight, it's a little bit about me, about the 17 years I've done being Henry VIII. 17 years, I can't believe it. But anyway, there you go. So being Henry, how did it happen? That's how we're going to start the evening. How did it happen? Well, I'm going to take you back in the mist of time, right back to that awful place called the 1980s. And um, I decided in the 1980s that I was going to be a rock star. And um, I was going to be the next big thing. I was going to be marvellous. Uh, but I suddenly realised, it suddenly dawned on me very quickly that the people you saw on top of the pops didn't look like me. They didn't look like the sad offspring of a mating ritual between a waterbed and an orangutan. And, um, and I just thought, you know, this isn't going to work for me, so I'm going to have to do something else. So I thought, I know. People laughed at my music. I'll be funny. And um, I hooked up basically with this uh, guy called Steve Newman, who was an absolute crazed god-bother of the finest kind. And um, we decided we were going to be the next great comedy thing. So we started writing a few sketches and doing some shows and whatnot. And um, then Edinburgh Festival started beckoning. I'm getting buzzing noises from my phone, which is terribly embarrassing because I'm supposed to turn it off. There's probably someone saying, I can't get in. Oh, God. Somebody's just paid and is asking for a link. <laughs> Sorry, this is, you tell us a live show. I can edit this out when I do the actual thing. Right, I'm going to turn the phone off now. If everybody's late now, it's tough. Go away, phone. Thank you. So Edinburgh Festival, here we come. We get offered a chance to go up and do the Edinburgh Festival. Now, I'd, we just assumed you'd write a show, go up, do the Edinburgh Festival, get given a BBC TV series, and that's the end of it. doesn't happen that way. See, because you go to Edinburgh, and the place is packed. The place <laughs> is absolutely stuffed to the gunnels with people with the same idea as us that they're going to be the next big thing, and they're not. Um, one thing also you don't ever find in Edinburgh, I can tell you right now, is people from Edinburgh. When the Edinburgh Festival is on, people from Edinburgh just bugger off. They disappear. They rent out their houses and they go away. The only Scottish people you ever meet in Edinburgh are drunk Glaswegians trying to start a fight with effeminate British actors. And there's lots of those. So anyway, we go up to Edinburgh. We rather stupidly, because of a cock up in our booking, we had to travel up from London on the day of our first performance. So we had to drive up to Edinburgh, get everything set up, do a, all sorts of different checks for the theatre, and then do the show as well at 10 o'clock at night. It's going to kill me now if I did it now. Anyway, we get up there, get everything set up. We decide we need somebody out the front dishing out leaflets for the, for the show, try and work up a bit of interest. So I get asked if I can do the first stint outside dishing out leaflets. So I'm outside, got my production t-shirt on my little pile of leaflets and I'm dishing them out willy-nilly and as I say nobody from Edinburgh is going to be there the only Scottish people you meet are rather dangerous drunk Glaswegians and all of a sudden one of them turns up and um, from a distance he looked like a bit like a, a tartan bedecked Father Christmas he had a white beard and a white moustache and he had a he had a kilt on he had a, a tartan tam shanter and he had a white t-shirt with a Scottish saltire on it uh, he also, at some point during the day, somebody had obviously clearly punched him in the face because his nose was broken and he had blood all down his beard and moustache and all down the white of his T-shirt. And we're dishing out leaflets and he's walking around. He's trying to take a leaflet off me and you can smell the whiskey fumes off him. And I'm just I'm just trying to ignore him. I'm just like, no, 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 no. And he's following me around and he's just like, oh, go away. Don't want to give you a leaflet. 
And eventually, I turned around at one point, and he's just standing there. And he's like, you good? Give me a leaflet. And I was like, yeah, all right. And, and he held it upside down and was going, oh, hey, what is this? I said, well, it's a, it's a comedy show. We're doing stand-up and sketches and things. Oh, hey, is it funny? I said, well, yeah, we hope so. All right. See, he says, I'm me, I like a laugh, me. I really do. He said, but I ain't got much money. So if I buy a ticket off you, you're going to make me laugh. And if you don't, you won't mind if I come up on stage and smash your fucking heathen. Which was like, oh, great, okay, now knock yourself out. And he disappeared off into the crowd with his little piece of paper. And I thought, well, I won't see him again. 10 o'clock that night, we go on stage. The opening scene is all, all the members of the cast. Then we do each individual bits. And I came on for my individual bit. I was second on. And I walk up to the microphone and take the microphone. As I look into the audience in the first row, he's sitting in the front row, still with blood all down his front. He's like, oh. Well, I'm assuming he liked the show because he didn't come up on stage and beat my fucking heathen. So I, I got away with that. Um, but no, Edinburgh was, uh, wasn't the leaping point we thought it would be because I had no um, relatives working for the BBC or ITV. So there was no way I was going to get picked up. I really gradually, my um, my acting aspirations and comedy aspirations just slowly sort of faded away. And in fact, I did so well in the world of show business that I spent the next 20 odd years working in offices, which were terribly exciting, doing jobs that I thought were incredibly important, but they weren't. And um, I just... Very good at monologue, is he? Absolutely, whoever that is. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> that scanned your life. Whoa, yeah, we love it. And I just thought there's there's not going to be any point of me trying to perform. I've done my bit. I'm never going to perform again. Now, my dear friends from the quiz lot, you know them, the Ragnarok Ravers, Sue and Ian. Uh, I'd known Ian for many years, and he'd for... Donkey Would you like another mince pie? Yes, please. Yeah, Go yeah, on, pass them around. Why do you want to pie? <laughs> I'd, just, I'd mute yourself if I was here, because otherwise everyone's... Sorry, I, th I thought I was muted. I beg your pardon. Oh, you can't beat a live show, can you? Fantastic. Um, and Ian Weston, uh, bless him, I've known him for donkey's years. And he'd always, in his spare time, dressed up as a Viking, which terribly excites some people and me. <laughs> no, and um, doing shows, sort of country shows, when there's like sort of 50 of you doing a battle reenactment, you're not going to make a living out of that because they don't pay you enough. Um, but he met this new lady, Sue, and she was a teacher. And she said, well, look, if you go into schools, and do a living history day as just you. It's just you getting the money. And he had all the Viking gear. He had all the battle stuff. He had all like, the lifetime stuff, all the sort of cooking implements and the toys and the instruments and that sort of thing. And he started going around schools doing these living history days. And they took off to the extent that he then started doing Romans as well and all sorts of things. And But every single place they went to, every single school they went to, people would come up to them and say, do you know anybody who does Henry VIII? Do you know anybody who looks like Henry that can be interested? And they said, well, just by chance, we happen to know this enormous ginger maniac. Um, unfortunately, he was busy, so they had to ask me instead. Um, and at the time, I had what I thought was a really important job. As I say, I was working for Scandia Life, the greatest company in the history of humanity. Yes, Goff, you remember it well. Um, and my son had just been born. We had a mortgage. And I thought, no, that's too scary. I can't run away from that, you know. Um, but Sue and Ian just wouldn't let it go. I'll give them their due. They would not let it go. They were like a dog with a bone. They were just insistent. You can be Henry VIII. You can be Henry VIII. I was like, no, 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 no. Don't want to do it. Don't want to do it. And Amanda and I were living down in Somerset at the time. And they, they came down to stay with us to come and do some shows locally where we were. And I'd just driven back from Southampton, arrived back in Somerset that evening. And as soon as I walked through the door, they started again. Oh, Henry VIII, Henry VIII, Henry VIII. And I had a terrible journey home. And I must admit, I snapped. I went, all right. 
That's it. Shut up. Forget it. We'll do Henry VIII. I'll do one show. I'll prove to you it won't work. And then you'll shut up about it forever. And they were like, okay. So they organised the show for me. Now, the show itself was in a tiny little village near Saffron Walden in Essex, a place called Rickling Green, which I doubt anybody has even heard of. Even I haven't heard of it. I've been there. And they organised this show for me. I've got a costume made, and I wrote down a few ideas about what I was going to say. It was only a half day, the very first day I was going to do, so it was nice and easy. Now, I was still living in Somerset, and I wanted to get this right. I didn't want to screw up. So I made myself a huge list of what I had to do to get to do this show, to do it properly. Props I had to bring, costume, etc., etc., etc. Packed up the car, drove to Essex, went up to Saffron Walden, went up to Rickling Green. I started unpacking the stuff and discovered to my horror that I'd left my pantaloons in Somerset. I was, to all intents and purposes, naked from the waist down in front of a load of children. Now, this is Operation Yew Tree territory. This is like, this is scary. So I've got to do the show. So what I did was I basically had this huge, great robe and I just wrapped it round me like a flasher who didn't flash. I did the whole show wrapped up like I was in a roll of carpet. But, I, and there's a big but, folks, I have to say, as soon as I did the show, I thought, oh, yeah, I like this. This is great. This is combining my two favourite things, which is one, history, and two, showing off. What more is not to like? And I phoned up Sue and Ian that evening and said, yeah, Love it. Let's do some more. And they put my details on their website and I immediately started getting phone calls from schools. It was straight away. <clears throat> and it got to the point where I was getting so many shows that I was running out of time off from work to go and do them. By this time, I'd left the mighty walls of Scandia life and I was now working for another company in called Debenhams in their head office in Taunton. And um, it was a horrible job. It made it did actually make Scandia look like a, a, a sort of a, a holiday camp, really. Um, and I was taking more and more time off, you know, like phoning up, pretending to be ill, so I could go and do a show somewhere. And I thought, something's got to give. I can't keep doing this. And I thought, I want to do Henry full-time, but I'm a bit scared what the wife's going to say. So one evening after doing a, a sh some work at Debenhams, on the way home, I thought, well, I'll buy a bottle of wine. I'll butter her up and see what she thinks. And I drove home. And I got home and I thought, right, what do I say? What do I say? I want to be Henry VIII. I want to be Henry VIII. And as I walked through the door, I said, oh, I bought you a nice bottle of wine, dear. And she went straight away. She said, have you thought about giving up work and doing Henry full time? And I was like, no, I never thought of that. Brilliant. Fantastic. And the very next day, I went into Debenhams and I resigned. And that was only six weeks after my first show. Um, and that was a good meeting as well, because I just had my appraisal. They, they said, uh, they started telling me what their, their plans were for me. And I said, well, you need to read this first. And I gave them the resignation letter. And they said, oh, where are you going? And I said, 16th century England. And, um, <clears throat> and I left. And 17 years later, here we are still going. So that was, that was Johnny Good. And I immediately started getting lots of lovely jobs and working in wonderful places. And I was very lucky down in Somerset. And then we got some very, very nice old Tudor houses down there. And I, I started sort of making representations of myself to go and do shows there. And very quickly, I got my feet under the table at a place called Barrington Court, which is a, a fabulous old Tudor E-shaped building near Ilminster in Somerset. And they had a wonderful visitor services manager there at the time ago called Matthew Applegate, who I'm still very good friends with. <clears throat> and he booked me for various shows. And what I loved about Barrington Court is it was so, it was like the Tipfield Thunderbolt. It was all sort of run by people who liked it because they just because it was there, not because it was making vast amounts of money, but it was all terribly, oh, come in and have a cup of tea, Mr. Farley, sort of type thing. Very nice. <clears throat> and you got lots and lots of very old people there. And 
the first part of my period working there, it was co-run by the National Trust, who sublet it to a company called Stewart's Interiors, who basically had these wonderful, hugely expensive antique bits of furniture, and they used Barrington Court as a sales room. And so all the rooms are full of this wonderful stuff. All these bits of furniture had price tags on them. And they were big price tags. I remember there was one particular court cabinet. I thought, oh, that's nice. It was £26,000. So I had two. Um, I should have sawn it up in small pieces and taken it with me and then reassembled it at home with some glue. That would have been great. But um, I was doing one particular day there. One particular day springs to mind. <clears throat> I was at Barrington Court. And I was in one of the small side rooms. What I like to do, because it was quite dark in there, is I, sometimes I'd sit in the corner as Henry, very quiet. And then someone would walk in the room and you go, nah! and they go, ah, and make them jump. And it was funny because I get like that. Um, and it was getting near the end of the day on a Saturday afternoon. And it was fairly darkish. And I was sitting in this sort of small dining room, as it was called, in one part of the house. And I could hear a couple coming up the corridor towards the room. So I thought, oh, this would be great. I'll sit in the corner and... When they come in, I'll go, nah, and they'll jump, and it'll be, ha-ha, very funny. But I could hear them talking as they were coming out of the corridor, and they sounded like Minnie and Henry from The Goon Show. And he was all like, oh, dear. and she was and terribly old. And I thought, no, I, I can't leap out the dark and shock because I'll kill them. I really, and Honestly, they'll just disintegrate or something. And I thought, no, I can't do that. So I thought, well, what I'd do is I'll position myself right by the door. So literally, as they come in, the very first thing they see will be Henry VIII. So I took a full Holbein position, sort of looking very grand. And suddenly he came into view, and he was even more ancient than I expected him to be. He looked like a sort of slightly reanimated prune. And he, he appeared at the door. Now, coming into the dining room, there was a tiny little step. and I mean tiny. It literally, it was only about that big. It wasn't a huge step. But he didn't see it. And as he walked in, he caught his foot and went, Arr! and he started falling. So I dashed forward and I, I caught him and sort of lifted him up. And he, he didn't really weigh anything. And he, I lifted him up and he said, oh, thank you so much. I nearly fell. I said, yeah, you're all right. Oh, yes. And just that moment, his wife appeared. She's like, oh, and she saw me and she took a step in and she tripped. And I caught her as well. So I ended up with two of them in each arm. So one oh, thank you, Henry. You said alive. Oh, dear. Now, they both had these. This was in the era of over-the-ear hearing aids, sports. But these, both of these had these real, like, hello! So, you know, ghetto buster ones still strapped to their front. And um, they obviously weren't turned up very much because you'd say something to them and they'd go, what? And you'd say, like, uh, do, do you like the house? What did he say? I don't know. It's, it's something about an ass, I think. But anyway, and it was it was really difficult having a conversation with them. But they're very sweet. They're very nice. But they're both deaf as a post. And the, the conversation sort of dried up. And we were both sort of standing there. I thought, I just need to get away now. I'll leave them to it. And, and they're like, oh, yes, yes, good. Mm, oh, yes. Yeah. And you're like, okay, let's just try and escape. And all of a sudden, he farted. And when I say farted, he, you could have put the afterburners on and launched the Saturn V with this. It was like <laughs> one of these real absolute rattle, the sort that can change the way you walk. And um, it was, but they were obviously both so deaf they didn't hear it because they didn't say a word. You obviously thought it was a silent but deadly one. And it was like, oh dear. So I'm standing and I'm trying desperately not to laugh because I thought, you know, this is, oh dear. And um, I said, well, um, well, I suppose I better be going now, really. And she turned to me the old lady. She patted my hand and she said, you certainly give this room lots of atmosphere, don't you? <laughs> I said, no, 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 sorry. That was your husband, love. It wasn't me. So I uh, opened a window. We let him out. 
Oh dear. Um, then I started spreading out in other directions. Uh, I very luckily got a job at uh, Leeds Castle in Kent by a very bizarre way. Very early on in my um, era of being Henry, I thought, I know, I'll put a cryptic advert in the back of the private eye. That will get me loads of work. So I paid about 70 quid for this advert in the back of private eye. And it just said, do you need Henry VIII? Then call good King Hal and my website, my uh, email and my phone number. And I didn't hear anything. Not a single person came back to me. I didn't get a single response to this at all. Not a thing. And then about a year later, out of the blue, I suddenly get this phone call. And it's this lady called Darlene Cavill from um, Leeds Castle. And she was the um, basically the special events organiser there. And somebody who worked for Leeds Castle, worked for her, had been in a dentist waiting room and there was a pile of old private eyes and she picked it up and seen the advert, nicked the magazine, took it into work and gave it to Darlene and Darlene saw it and phoned me. And I'm still working at Leeds Castle now all these years later, thanks to that one advert. So I suppose it has paid for itself. Um, but my first ever day at Leeds Castle, she wanted me to come in and talk about being Henry VIII. And... I mean, James is going to be 19 in a couple of weeks. These days, he was probably about three, two and a half, three. So it was a long time ago. And he, she said, well, yeah, bring your wife and son with you. They can go and have a look around the gardens and you and I can go and have the meeting. So we did that. And it went really well. And um, so I phoned Amanda on her mobile from Darlene's office. Look, we're finished. We'll meet you. Where do you want to meet? And Darlene said, we'll meet them in the grand um, banquet hall. That would be the easiest place to meet. It's right in the middle of the castle. So we wandered down there and there's two entrances to the hall, one at the back, one at the front. And Darlene and I came through the back and Mandra and little Tiddly James came in through the front. And I thought, I really hope I've impressed Darlene enough that she's going to give me some work out of this. And as Amanda and James walked in, above the fireplace in the Grand Banquet Hall, there's a huge, great painting of Henry VIII. And James, bless his heart, ran into the room, stopped, took his dummy out and went, Daddy, <laughs> the painting. He's <laughs> like, yes. Well done, son. Good job I employed a midget that day. We got away with it, but it was... Um... Well, I've had some fun times at Leeds Castle. It's a strange fact. Did, did my first jousting there with the Knights of Royal England. Um, I nearly got killed by some American security agents there once, which was quite exciting. Um, I got booked to do a, a show there during the um, London Olympics in 2012 uh, by a company called Cuvée Reserve, very posh posh people who have lots of money and they pay for expensive holidays and then film themselves having expensive holidays and talk about it whatever cranks you handle I suppose and um it was the middle of the, the London Olympics and these guys were so rich that they basically hired Leeds Castle for the whole of the Olympics to use it as their base to go up to London and go and see all the action. And they wanted a joust. So we came down as the Knights of Rolling did a joust. They had a banquet one evening. They wanted Henry VIII to come along and do some cabaret. So I came along and did my Henry VIII cabaret thing. But what they'd done is they'd also invited various gold medal winners along to their evening party. And um, one of them, there was a, an American swimmer. I don't know if you remember at um, the London Olympics called Missy Franklin. And she was from Deep South. She was told, oh, yeah, they're out there. And she was about 18 years old. She was about six foot five with shoulders like a barn door. And um, she was there as one of the guests. And she'd already won about five golds and a bronze and a silver and various other things. And I got to meet her. I was standing there dressed as Henry. And she came in. Miss Missy Franklin. Oh, hello, Missy. I said, oh, well done. Said, oh, thank you very much. I said, oh, you haven't got the um, gold medals with you, have you? And she went, I have. Do you want to see them? Christ, yes, please. 
And she got this bomb, bomb, bomb bag out and opened it. And there was these big presentation leather cases. And she opened the first one. There's one with gold medals in it. And they were huge. They were like dinner plates. Massive, huge, quite heavy things. And she said, look at and so we got another one. She had, I've got two gold medals in my hand. I'm like, whoa, I've got two Olympic medals in my hand. I know, this will be funny. I'll pretend to run away with them. So I went to her, oh, look at that, and then turned and pretended to run off. And out of nowhere, about 15 security guards went, what? And all just jumped on me. And it was, well, had the earpiece. Like, no, 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 no. Put the guns down. No, it's all right. It was a joke. It was a joke. Don't shoot me, for God's sake. So, um, yeah, I just about got away with that. Bless her. No, Leeds Castle in a funny place. I did get proposition there once as well, which was quite alarming. I was um, I was doing a, a kids show called Henry's Horrid History. I was doing three shows a day. At the end of each show, what happened was the kids would all come up onto the stage and we'd do a photograph each with the kids. Um, and you'd end up with like, at the end of each show, there'd be a queue, there'd be a load of kids one side of the stage and the parents with the cameras the other side. And you come up and go, hello, click, hello, click, hello, click. And that was it. And after one particular show, just before lunch, they had all these people lined up and did all the kids. And eventually there was just a, a couple left, no kids. So I was like, oh, no children. They went, oh, no, no, no. We, we, we're big fans of Henry VIII. We'd like to come up and do a photo with you. Is that all right? So I said, yeah, of course you can. And the bloke said, yeah, my wife particularly, she's a huge fan of Henry VIII. So I said, oh, right, okay, great. So does she want a photo? Oh, yeah. So she came over and, you know, standing there, she puts her arm around me and, oh, thank you very much indeed. And so the guy's taking photos, click, click, click. And he's taking loads of photos. Now, all of a sudden, her hand suddenly goes down and she grabs my bum and gives it a right good... I mean, real intimate, uh, uh, you know, obviously supposed to go for a full cavity search, but she didn't quite. And um, I was like, oh, you know, it's a bit strange. And um, thought, well, I'll move away. So I moved away from her. And, uh, and they sort of say, it's a nice costume. Is it your costume? I said, yeah, yes, yeah, my costume. I had it made for me. Yeah. And uh, they said, do you live local? I was like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm down in Somerset. I'm just here for a few days doing some shows. All right, we live very local. Oh, right. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, what time do you finish? I said, Mr. Innocent. I'm like, oh, about five-ish sort of thing. She said, oh, right. Well, when you finish at five, um, do you want to come around to our place? I was like, why? What, do, what the hell do you want me around there for? And they basically wanted me to go around with the costume. <laughs> and um, how can we say uh, delicately, um, entertain the wife while the, fa- the husband took some photographs, which was... Uh, what they were interested in. I was like, horrified. I mean, if, to be honest with you, I mean, if she looked like Nigella Lawson, I'd have thought about it. But the fact she looked like Bella Emberg, it was a bit of a put off, to be brutally honest. And um, in the end, I thought, oh, no, I can't, no, no, go away. And I started shooting them away. And I walked out the back and they built a little green room out the back for me to go and sit in, in between shows. I went out there and some of the staff were out there and they all suddenly went, oh my God, I was walking out there, are you all right? I was like, well, they said, you're as white as a sheet. <laughs> Have you seen a ghost? I said, I just think you won't believe what just happened down there. <laughs> we all ended up at the window looking at us. That's him. That's important. <laughs> so very, very strange people. But then, of course, you you do tend to meet very strange people when you are doing historical stuff. I mean, Chris Langdon's here for a start. I mean, I'll rest my case. Um, now, Chris, bless his heart, I first met him doing some shows down at a wonderful place in Southend called South Church Hall. And South Church Hall, bless his heart, beautiful, beautiful place. Total, totally overlooked gem of a Tudor house that if you're ever in Southend, you get a chance to go and see it before it falls down because Southend Museum Service don't give a shit. Anyway, um, and the very first time I ever worked down there, they, they used to do a wonderful annual show there called Meet the Tudors. Come and meet the Tudors. And you get loads of people like me dressed up as big ponces walking around and waving our cod pieces at people and that sort of thing. And they have artisans and artists and all sorts of other people doing stuff. And it, was, it was really great. Let's get loads of kids turn up. 
And the very first time I did a show there, I, I turned up and the guy who booked me was a wonderful guy called Rob Colby Blake. And he he sort of waited for me to arrive and he said, right, go and get changed, get changed that room up there. So I went and got changed. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, I'm doing my show at one o'clock, but what do you want me to do up till then? It was about half past 10 at this point. And he said, well, just, just walk around the gardens, just mingle with the punters who've arrived and chat with them and then, oh, just hit the microphone. I do apologise. And then, you know, come and do the show at one. So I was like, okay, fine, okay. So I walked outside and there's loads of Tudor people around. It looked great. It was fantastic. So I'm outside of my full Henry gear. I start walking along and um, now, you know, when sometimes some, you notice something out of the corner of your eye, if someone starts running towards you really quickly, that happened. I was aware of someone approaching me at a great speed. And I looked across and there was this really quite well-built bloke dressed up as a Tudor peasant running like, like I don't know, Usain Bolt towards me, full speed. At the same time going, my Lord, your majesty, my Lord. And you're just like, oh, fuck, you know. And he comes flying over, leaps full length, and lands on his knees in front of me, which must have really hurt, with his hands clasped together. And he goes, my Lord, I bring grave news from Portsmouth. I thought, what's happened? Has Harry Redknapp been sacked? I don't know. And he said, well, no, 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 my Lord, terrible news from Portsmouth. I suppose and he then proceeded to tell me the story of the sinking of the Mary Rose. And he did it in old English, whilst absolutely screaming every single word, with his eyes sticking out like organ stops. He had veins like whip cords on his neck. He was sweating like buggery. And there was all these people started gathering around us. And of course, I'm just like... And he's like, oh, my Lord, and then the perfidious French, ah, oh, they did come out, and they did their sword, and, and there was gunfire, and all oh, the shipping rocked and the shipping sank, ah, oh, great loss of life. And it went on and on and on, and you're just like, I don't know what to do. And eventually he finished with, all is lost, my Lord, all is lost. And he just got up and walked off. And I'm left now with about 50 people all standing around me, and you're just like, I thought, well, that was nice, wasn't it? And everyone just cleared off. I thought, well, thank God that's over. And we carried on with the day. And I did my Henry's Horrid History show. And then after Henry's Horrid History show, uh, Robert decided I needed to judge the fancy dress competition with the kids. So all the kids who arrived that day had all dressed up as little Tudors. So I had to sit on this throne on a dais in the main hall while the kids were all paraded around in front of me. And I just sort of said, oh, yeah, that one, that one, and give them the prizes and take photos and that sort of thing. And, of course, everybody was in there by now. The whole place was packed out with all the people who'd come in. And anyway, finished, the kids got their presents, fantastic. And just at that moment, this door to my left suddenly went, bang! Guess who? My Lord! Grave news from Portsmouth. Oh, shit, it sunk again. And he came in, and it was like, oh, and he threw himself to the floor in front of me. I couldn't escape. I'm on this dais on a throne, and he's right there. Oh, my Lord! Terrible news, the perfidious French, the battle of the soul, and, har, 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 and all this sort of stuff. And it went on and on and on and on and on. And eventually it sank. Thank Christ it sank. Ah, my Lord, all is lost. All is lost. And he stood up and walked off again. Now, this time I'm trapped on a throne surrounded by people. And I had this screen next to me with like what's on next written on it. And now let's go to Carol Kirkwood for the weather. And um, which didn't go down very well, but it was my idea. I thought it was, it was quite funny, really. And then right at the end of the day, we're all packing up and finishing and everything. And um, 
he suddenly appears next to me and he's like, oh, oh, and he was one of the most intense people I've ever met. I don't know who the hell he was. It's the only time I ever met him in my entire life. And he came and said, oh, oh, did you like my uh, story about the singing of the Mary Rose? I was like, oh, it's fantastic. Loved it. Oh, yes. He's like, I'm, I'm very passionate about history. I was like, yeah, I can tell you are, mate. Yeah, blimey. Cool. Don't find drugs. You'll be dangerous. Um, because there are loonies around. There's plenty of loonies around, particularly, particularly in history. But there's also um, some celebrities you get to meet are slightly strange as well. And um, I've met two or three doing this. It's quite nice. I get to meet. I I met I met one very famous person once. I didn't know who it was, which was very embarrassing. I was uh, doing some filming at a studio in South London, and we we're having a break. And I was sitting all dressed up in my Henry costume, having some something to eat with a couple of the floor managers, a couple of women. And I'm sitting there just eating away. And all of a sudden, I hear this big American voice go, yo, Henry, nice costume. Oh, okay. So I looked across, there's this huge, big, bronzed American thing standing there with gleaming teeth. I was, oh, thanks very much. Hey, come on. And he takes my hand and goes, crushes my hand, folds it up and hands it back. Thanks, mate. And he walks off. I carried on eating. And suddenly, realized that the two floor managers, the two women had just stopped talking. And I was like, looking at them, and they were both going, this bloke where he walked off. And I said, you all right? And they went, do you know who that was? I was like, no, no, I've got a clue. But that was Matt LeBlanc. Now, I hate Friends. I've never watched Friends in my entire life, so I could have walked. I did. I met Matt LeBlanc and didn't even know it was him. The first time I realised it was who it was I'd met was when he started doing Top Gear. He was suddenly on there. I went, oh, that's that bloke I met. Down in the studio. So there you go. Um, one of the strangest celebs I ever met, though, was it was a very strange meeting as well. It was, again, I was working with the Jousters. We were doing a, a, a show at Hever Castle. And we've got our own um, sort of area where we do our jousting, our own little arena with stands and whatnot. Um, but it's not very well drained. And sometimes if you get a lot of rain, it's pretty unusable. And this particular summer, it'd be really, really wet. And we turned up on the Saturday to do the show. And it was like, it was like Passchendaele. It was just mud. And it was too dangerous for the horses to go out. I mean, we could have gone out and fallen over and killed ourselves. They wouldn't have cared, but the horses were expensive. Um, so they said, well, you need to do it somewhere else. So we set up a temporary arena, the other side of the car park on some hard standing area. And instead of having my normal Royal box, which at Hever Castle is very posh. I've got a real proper Royal box. I've got like, you know, real, you know, chairs and thrones and a roof and flags and everything. I'm, I'm big me. But instead, all I had was like a, an Ivor Williams trailer with some flags draped over it and my throne stuck in there with a microphone to do the commentary because I commentate on the, on the jousting. And um, so I, I get in the box and the very last thing, Jeremy, the head of the jousters said to me, Cameron, he said, look, you're very close to the public here. You haven't got any high sides like you've got in the Royal box. If any of the public try to get in, shove them out. They're not allowed in because they're near our equipment and they're bothering you when you're doing the microphone and the stuff. And so just if anybody tries to get in, shove them out. So, okay. And nobody did. Everyone was being very, very English. And about three quarters of the way through the show, I'm commentating away like mad. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, look at that. He's fallen off. Oh, he's broken his arm. Oh, the horse has exploded. That sort of thing. And all of a sudden, this woman pops her head over the side of the counter and goes, hello. And you're like, hello. You know, carry on commentating. And she's going, look, look at her face. Now, I was glasses off because I do that when I'm being Henry normally. And without my glasses, honest to God, I'm blind as a bat. If I do that, I can just barely see the screen in front of me. Oh, there I am. And so I didn't know who she was. She could have been, she could have been the Cardinal Richelieu for all I know. Didn't know who it was. And she was going, hello. And I was like, yeah, all right, yeah, great. And she starts lifting a chair over into the box. And I'm like, piss off. 
She's going, no, no, it makes a hand over the microphone again. Piss off. She's going, no, I'm coming in. Oh, God. She starts pushing the chair in, and I'm leaning over with my foot trying to push it out. We start having this battle where she's shoving the chair and I'm kicking it back. Piss off. And then she starts lifting children in as well. And you're just like, what are you fucking doing, you insane woman? And she's putting these kids in, like, go piss off, sort of thing. And I thought, how would I? And she just wouldn't take no for an answer. So I said, like, oh, forget it. I've got to commentate. So, so eventually she gets in and sits next to me with this child and keeps looking at me and going, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I'm in big trouble with Jeremy now. This is terrible. Um, it was only when I'd finished the show, I suddenly realised it was Jerry Halliwell from the Spice Girls. Um, and she'd turned up on spec at Heaver Castle with one of her sprogs. And obviously being very rich and famous, Heaver Castle gave her everything because obviously she needed it. So she got free entry to the castle and she got free entry to the jousting. And, she, and then she complained that they couldn't see very well from where they were. So somebody at Heaver Castle had told her to get in the royal box with me. So and that was, and she was very odd. She's one of the oddest people I've ever met because you asked her a question. And every time you asked her a question, it could be anything. She would think about it before she gave an answer. You could even say, you know, is it daylight? And she'd go, yes. All right, okay. And I was sort of saying things, I was trying to be sort of polite and say things to her. I said, um, what are you doing next? You know, are you recording something? Yes. <laughs> okay. And um, did the children enjoy the jousting? I don't want to talk about my children. <laughs> I'm just like, okay. So, yeah, she was a bit odd. Very odd. And then I really, really insulted another person, famous person, um, a friend of mine wrote a very good uh, uh, historical book called Les Temps de Viendre back in 2012 and had it published. And she asked me if I'd come along to the launch. And the the whole launch for this book was we were going to stick us on this posh boat and ride us up and down the Thames and take photos of me with her with the book in front of the House of Parliament and Tower of London and all that. And um, so there was me, there was her, there was also the um, historical author, Alison Weir. She was on the boat as well. And we were supposed to have uh, Natalie Dormer turn up as well. And Natalie Dormer uh, was Anne Boleyn in the Tudors. And she was also in Game of Thrones. You might recognise her. She was naked. Um, oh, no, everybody was in Game of Thrones. <laughs> me. And um, so we, they, they, they booked her as well. But she was late. So we actually had to stop the launch halfway through the driving up and down the Thames and allow her onto the boat. Now, by this time, I'd finished my official duties. Now, one of the things I never, ever do when I'm being Henry is I never ever drink. It's just trying to be very professional. I don't want to be drunk and I don't make a fool of myself. Even tonight, I only have water, look at that. Um, but I had officially knocked off. So I thought, I don't care, I'm gonna drink. And there was lots of free wine on the boat. And so I got stuck into about three quarters of a bottle of Valpolicella and I was friends with everyone. And um, suddenly Natalie Dormer appears. Now I'm still dressed as Henry. So of course she's been Anne Boleyn. So someone says, oh, let's get Natalie over for a photo with Henry VIII. So I'm absolutely pissed as a fart by this time. And they sort of wheel her over. And she's very pretty and very little and very twee and everything. And she came over and it was like, oh, Mike, look at that, Natalie Dormer. And I went, oh, hello, Natalie. I didn't recognise you with your clothes on. And it was like, you know, sometimes when you sober up like that, that happened then. I was suddenly, I was like, oh, my God, she's going to kill me. And she stood there for a second, then she burst out laughing. I thought, oh, I'm safe. And then I saw her boyfriend's face behind her. 
No, I wasn't saying. No, he was a very, very jealous Italian-looking man. But uh, no, I just about survived. They, they threw me overboard a couple of times, but um, I washed up on a beach. They thought it was a whale and kept pushing me back in the water, so I was all right. So here we go. 17 years, 5,000-plus shows. And sometimes people say to me, they say, you know, do you get bored being Henry VIII? And the thing is, how can you possibly be bored being Henry VIII because he's just such a lunatic and it's wonderful. You can be as mad as you want and get away with it. And um, the other reason I don't ever get bored as well is because a lot of the time, about 85% of my work is I work with children in schools. And if anybody here has ever worked with kids, you know children are great because they are just the most random little swines going. So every single day, every single show, every single visit to a school is completely random. You have no idea what you're going to get. It's a complete adventure every day. You know, some of the things kids ask you, questions about the about the Tudor. What car did he drive? Like I said before, he drove, drove a Tudor. A Tudor! Because he had two... No, never mind. Um, and... Other questions I asked. I mean, there was one I, I remember the other day. I hadn't remembered it for ages. It was um doing a question and answer thing at school, and I said, "Right, anybody any questions about the Tudors?" And this kid put his hand up. Said, "What's your question?" And he said, uh, "Did Mary Queen of Scots play the spoons?" <laughs> well, I, said, I don't know. I never saw it. She could have done, you know, because um, I always do a question and answer session with the kids. It's always great fun and. Um, Another one I got, which really stumped me completely, was at this school. I said, right, we've got a question about the Tudors. And this kid put his hand up and said, yes. He said, um, how many species of squid are there? And I'm like, what? I said, what? I squid? And he, yeah. And I said, what the hell is that going to do with the Tudors? So this is going to be a question about Henry VIII and the Tudors. And he was like, oh. He put his hand up. So I said, yes, right. I said, what's your question? He said, how many species of squid were there in Tudor times? <laughs> You've got to admire his tenacity. That was superb. It was great. Um, now, if I do tell this story in schools, of course, the kids always, when we get to the question and answer session, you can guarantee one little boy's going to go, oh, how many species of squid are there? And I've preempted them. I looked it up. It's 232. So there you go. So if anybody asks you how many species of squid are there, it's 232. Now I know that. Um, but my favourite thing, now I do a lot of work in schools. I used to do a lot more work in schools till this thing called Michael Gove happened. And uh, in his infinite wisdom, he decided to remove the Tudors from the Key Stage 2 curriculum. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. That's 85% of my work out the window. Cheers. And um, But one of the things I love best of all when I'm working with the kids in schools is, is when they impart their knowledge to me, stuff they've learned themselves, they impart it to me, and it's when they get it wrong. Because when they do that, you can learn some incredible things. Did you know Henry VIII wrote Greenpeace? Nice, isn't it? Henry VIII died because he had a large abbess on his knee. Bloody great nun. You know? <laughs> and um, now in all these times I've, I've been doing this, I, I've, I've had lots of different costumes over the years. I've probably had about ooh, 10, 12 costumes over the years while I've been doing this. Um, and one of the early costumes I had had a rather prominent cod piece on it. And uh, I tend not to wear it at schools anymore because I keep getting arrested. Um, no, don't worry, it's a joke. Um, <laughs> Operation Utree, what's that? Yeah, put it down, sir. I was cleaning it, it went off on the end. Um, and it was also a wrong thing to wear to schools because it tended to distract the front rows. Now, for those of you who don't know what it is, a cod piece is like a post-medieval version of a wonder bra for a man. In the very much like a wonder bra, when you take it off, you wonder where everything's gone. And um, 
anyway, I, I, I tended not to wear this cod piece around school because it was too distracting. A load of 10-year-old boys all going <laughs> in the front row. Doesn't help with the historical setting. Um, and I used to do a talk about the costume as well. I was like, what's this bit? What's this bit? What's this bit? This is it. And if ever I got to the cod piece, you, no one ever knew what the cod piece was called. You'd say, what's this? And you get the usual answers you get from 10-year-old boys. All <laughs> yeah. No one had ever known. No one had known what it was until eventually I was doing a very, very posh school down in Surrey. I'll tell you how posh it was. Um, Judy Dench's grandchildren were there. I only know that because I saw them uh, picking them up and she came to get them after I'd done the show. So I entertained Judy Dench's grandchildren. Anyway, um, so I'm wearing the, co the codpiece costume at this particular school. All right, so I'm doing the talk about the costume. I'll get as far as the codpiece. Anyway, know what this is called. Get the usual answers. No one knows. Let's move on. Well, I'm just about to move on when there's this almost road to Damascus moment where there's this shaft of ethereal light through the window of the classroom, which illuminates a small boy two rows from the front, and he stands slowly, and his hand rises above his head, and he says, Yes, I do know what Empire costume's called. I said, do you? And yes. I said, right, what's it called? He said, I think it's called a cur. A cur. He was like, oh, please say compiece, please say compiece. I think it's called a cockpit. Yeah. I said, you're close, son. You're very close to a cockpit. In that it's got a joystick and it controls me, but that's as far as it goes. We won't go any further than that. Um, <laughs> bless him. Oh, dear. And um, another school I did. Yeah, another story just re revealed itself to me. I, I used to do a lot of shows at a school down near Canterbury, a place called Bleen. Kathy might have heard of it down in, yeah, cool girl. And Bleen's a lovely school. It's a really cracking school. Lovely, lovely teachers. And it was about the fourth or fifth time I've been there. And I turned up and the teacher that you normally book me, she came running outside. She goes, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I've got something to show you in the classroom. I thought, blimey, that's good. I'll normally just get a cup of tea and a biscuit. But uh, anyway, I walked in and um, I was very disappointed to see she was showing me some children's work instead. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, the kids have been doing projects about the Tudors and it was all different aspects of the Tudor era. And they'd made these fake leather bound tomes with sort of like, uh, um, what do you call it? Like carpet tiling used to look like uh, leather and they'd got all the pages, all the bits of paper, they'd, uh, they'd dip them in tea and aged them and then they put illuminated letters at the top of every page. It was really good, they'd done a fantastic job. And she says, you need to read this one and puts this tome in and boom. You know, blimey, and I'm, I'm starting in half an hour, I don't get a chance to read it. She goes, oh, no, 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 no. She says, you don't have to read the whole thing. She says, you just need to read the first paragraph. I went, really? She went, yes. I was like, okay, so I opened it. Now, this little girl, she'd done her particular project. <laughs> I'm laughing, thinking about it. She'd done her project about explorers. People like Thomas Cabo, John Cabo, rather, and uh, um, Francis Drake and Raleigh and a bit of Columbus, a bit of Miguel and that sort of stuff. And um, so I'm done the page. And the first page, she's done this beautiful illuminated manuscript, first page. And she'd written exactly this, the first paragraph she'd written. Sir Walter Raleigh circumcised the globe, and it gets better, with his 200-foot clipper. Well, you never get that on time, team, do you? No, that's right, absolutely. <laughs> but... Um, one of my other great joys in life now is I, I, I do a lot of shows for uh, things like U3A and uh, Rotary Clubs, and particularly the WI. Now, the WI are a rich source of delight and entertainment for me because the WI, 
I've got such fond memories of the WI because I remember my, my Welsh grandmother being a member of the WI in Margaretting, where and then my entire idea because the very first time I got asked to do a show by the WI, I was still living down in Somerset, and I got this phone call from this little lovely wobbly old lady. And she said, could you come and do a show for us, please? And they were in a little village called Bradford Abbas, which is this tiny microscopic speck halfway between Yeovil and Sherbourne. And she could you come and do an evening show for us? Said, no problem. Love to. And I suddenly thought, well, how do I do it? How do I do the show for them? How, how do I pitch it? Because I do, did kiddie shows. I did the school shows. And I did some grown-up, slightly naughty ones. But where do you put the WI on that sliding scale? Because they're, they're sweet little old ladies. You can't do it too grown up. They, they disintegrate. You can't do it too kiddie. It'd be patronising. So where do I do it? So I thought about it long and hard. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I will go to the kiddie end of the scale, but not be too patronising. And I should be safe. So I went for that. And it went really well. I was in this little hall with all these little lovely wobbly old ladies. And we we're doing this lovely wobbly show. And uh, now when I do the talk, to the kids, when I'm talking about the six wives, when I get as far as Catherine Howard, also known as the Hampton Court Leisure Centre, she was, um, shall we say, a bit of a girl, a bit of a goer. Um, she's only one of her starting blocks at the wedding ceremony. No, um, she uh, she was a bit of a lass in that she had lots of boyfriends and lovers and whatnot behind the king's back. And then, you know, she's a bit naughty. So whenever I do it with the kids, I always say to the kids during a show, I said, you know, she had, she had lots of boyfriends behind the king's back. And then she gave them jobs around the royal court so she could see them every single day. Was that a good idea? And the little kids will go, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Right, I'm doing this WI group. I get to this point and I say, right, she had lots of young lovers before she met the king. She carried on seeing them after she married the king. So she went even further. She started giving all these beautiful young men jobs around the royal court so she can see them every single day. Was that a good idea? And every single one of them went, oh, yeah, that's what I do. And it was just like, bloody hell, they're filthy. These old ladies are filthy. They're disgusting. And <laughs> And um, yeah, and that, that's the WI for you. And I, I was suddenly open my eyes because I just imagined them sort of all sitting around a woodworm riddle piano singing Jerusalem and knitting jam. But no, they were all of having these daydreams about Henry VIII. It was disgusting. And and I still do lots of work with the WI now. It's great. I'm, I'm now officially on the books of the WI in Essex. I'm signed up to the WI. I'm in their official books. That I'm one of their official speakers. Now, when I get booked by the WI... I always know it's the WI because they booked me so far in advance. The WI, they always phone you up and they say, um, is that Mr. Farley? And you say, yes, Ken, you do the Henry VIII talks? And you go, yes. Are you available on October the 28th, 2026? And you go, yes. You go, that was quick. You didn't check. Well, my calendar only goes up to the end of this year. So, yes, I'm pretty sure 2026 I'm free. Another reason you always notice the WI when they phone up is your mobile phone rings and it's a landline. Nobody under the age of 50 has a landline anymore. I'll give you that. They just don't. People don't have landlines. So as soon as the phone up and you see it's a landline, it's the WI. You get, hello, are you free at the turn of the next millennium? Yes, I am. Okay. And what I also like is when the really old ones phone up and book you like that several years in advance. And at the end of it, they go, see you there. And I'm always tempted to go, maybe not. But the phone, no, I wouldn't do that. No, they, they, they'll probably definitely make it. And um, and the WI, uh, they, well, <laughs> I always bigged them up, the WI, because of how good they were with my grandmother after my grandfather died. They were like a second family to us. So if ever I do a WI show, I'm always, oh, WI, WI, we love the WI. Yes, that's the WI, we like them. 
Now, I was doing a show. I got booked to do this show, an evening show, and it was up near Braintree. And I'm down in Basildon. And it was about a seven o'clock start. And it was on a Friday. So I had to drive out to sort of Friday rush hour traffic to get up to Braintree. And I had a, normally here to Braintree, 45 minutes maybe, tops. I had a horrendous journey. There was crash after crash, road works, everything. It took me two hours. And by the time I finally arrived at the venue, it was 20 minutes after I was supposed to have started and I wasn't even changed. So I screeched a halt outside this building. And as I screeched a halt, this woman, old lady came out and she went, you're late. And I'm just like, yeah, I know. You know that's, that's really helping. Thank you. Get in and get changed. Oh, yes, dear. Right. Okay. So rushed out the back, threw on the Henry costume, came outside and did the show. W-I-W-I, thank you. Goodbye. And at the end, I did my usual bigging up the W.I. Oh, I love the W.I. W.I. Oh, they're fantastic. They're great. I love the W.I. They're brilliant, wonderful, fantastic. And I finished all that. And then the lady has to give the vote of thanks when you've done the speech. And this woman stood up and she said, well, I'd like to thank you, Mr. Farley, for a very entertaining talk. But could I just tell you that we're not the W.I. We're the Townswomen's Guild. But my absolute favourite story with the W.I., um, as I say, you get booked months in advance. And I got booked by a particular WI somewhere in Essex. I won't say where, just in case anyone were watching. And they booked me for like the following August or something. And this was December. And I'd been away doing a Henry show and I got back home. And it was, I think it was about the 21st, 22nd of December I was home. And that was it, it was my last show before New Year. And I suddenly got a phone call. Landline, it's the WI. So I was, oh, hello. And it's, hello, Mr. Farley. We, we've booked you for next August to do a WI show. That's right. Um, we've got a bit of a conundrum. So we've got our big end of year party, a bit like the Downing Street, lots of these end of year parties. And so we've got this party and in two nights' time, and it's our big end of year one. And um, unfortunately, our speaker has let us down. Um, do you think you could come at very short notice and do a talk for us? And I was like, yeah, of course, can. no problem. It's easy. Yeah. Where are you? When is it? And she gave me the details of where the venue was and this, that, and the other. So, okay. Wrote it all down. See you there. So I went to the venue on the actual day. And now normally with the WI group, you turn up in a small sort of woodworm infested town hall, village hall, in the middle of nowhere with a few little old ladies and a moorhen. And that's it. And there's usually about you and about 20 old ladies. That's it. And I turned up at this one, and this venue was huge. It was like a sort of a miniature version of Wembley Arena. It was absolutely enormous. It was a big sports hall type place with this massive car park attached to it. And the car park was rammed. I was about half an hour before I was due on, and I couldn't even get in the car park. I had to park out in the street and trundle all my stuff over. And I arrived, and there was this woman. She goes, oh, you, you're Henry VIII. I said, yes. She goes, oh, I'm so pleased you're here. Oh, we got everyone here. I said, blimey, this is a big turnout. This is, this is what you get every week. And she went, oh, no, no, it's our end-of-year thing, and we have this five-year rolling thing, and once every five years, one of our WIs hosts the Christmas party, and we get all the other local WIs in together to make a big party, and it's our turn this year. So I was like, oh, great. So how many do you think you got here tonight? She said, we've, we've got probably about 500, and you're like, yeah, okay, fair enough. I said, right. Um, I said, big turnout. I said, you, know, they, you must have had a good speaker. Who do you have who's pulled out? She said, well, it was the, the daughter of one of our members. Okay, well, what was she going to talk about? Who is she? And she said, well, she's a neurosurgeon up in London. I was like, oh, well, okay, so a neurosurgeon. Why is she so popular? Why is there all these hundreds of people going to see a neurosurgeon? I said, what talk was she going to give? She said it was going to be called the female cerebral orgasmic response. And I said, come again. She went, that's the one. No, she didn't. She said, um, 
and they'd, they'd all turned up for this dirty talk, these old ladies. And I said, well, do they know she's not going to be here? And she went, no. You're like, oh, God. I said, do they know I'm now doing the talk? And she went, no. You're like, oh, jeez. What do I do? She said, well, go and get changed. And they had this big stage with big, heavy curtains on the front. She said, when you get changed, go behind the curtains, wait there. I'll look through. When I see you already, I'll introduce you. We'll open the curtains. You'll come out and do your show. And I was like, oh, okay. So anyway, she gets on the stage in front of the, the, the curtains. I'm behind them. And she's out the front. You can hear her going, ladies, ladies, please, attention. And they all start sitting there. Could you take your seats? The talk is going to start. And all moving into seats and sitting down. Um, because, well, I'm afraid, ladies, first of all, some bad news. Uh, talk about the female cerebral orgasmic response has had to be cancelled. Uh, I think some of them were faking it, to be honest with you, but they all go another. And um, she, said, but she said, but a very short notice and at no insignificant cost, we have a replacement in Henry VIII. Now, the loudest noise you could hear in the next 30 seconds was the curtains opening. There was not a sound. And I walk forward, and there's literally about two of them going, oh, God. I thought, what do I say? How do I, what can I do? And it suddenly came to me. And I took the microphone, and I said, good evening, ladies. I'm the anti-climax. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> So good old W.I., I do love them to pieces. Now, I'm going to finally torture you with a little bit of music. Now, this is enough to put the fear of God into any human being because this is a recorder. Ah! Now, most adults at some point in their life have had to endure a child with a plastic school squeaky recorder, which, be honest with me, and, and I'm not be honest with you, school plastic recorders in the wrong hands do usually sound about as musical as somebody thrashing a Siamese cat to death with an earthing rod. Whereas this is slightly different. This is a proper pucker Tudor recorder. This is called a Dordrecht recorder. Dordrecht being a small town in the Netherlands where this design originated from in the 1300s was still being used come Tudor times. And it sounds a lot different to the more school modern school plastic recorders because it sounds nice. Um, it's also much easier to play than the modern school plastic squeaky recorders because it doesn't squeak as much. Well, I hope not anyway. So I'm just going to blast through a couple of little tunes for you. And then you can start asking me some questions if you want. Yeah. Anyway, we'll do this. It sounds like this. Now, I'm also now going to play you probably the most famous piece of Tudor music um, that you've ever heard. Doesn't have to do it that way. No, different one. No, sorry, no. Different one altogether. No, we won't do Hawaii Five O just now. Perhaps Baby Shark. Anyone fancy it? No, maybe not. So uh, let's try this. Oh. 
What's always really nice is when you do that in a school with the kids, you play that and they're always desperate to tell you that they know what that piece of music's called. So I always finish and I say, right, what was that piece of music called? You get loads of hands. I go, yes. They go, Green Sleeves. I said, no, it's actually Gangnam, Gangnam Style, but it's a very good guess. Thank you very much indeed. Um, anybody got any questions they want to ask the king? Anything at all? It's open season. You can ask me how many squid there are. Anything at all, really. And uh, if not, I'll let you go. But uh, anybody got a question, unmute your mics and ask me a question. Far away. Anything goes. Apart from come back and do rude photos with you at your house with your wife. Don't y'all rush there. <laughs> oh, God. Should have given us some fair warning. No, no, no. I'd like, like to keep you on your toes, Goth. Oh, dear. Well, look, I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for purchasing tickets. I know that you get back to Boris's news conference. I'm sure it's fascinating whatever he's talking about. No, it's not really. But uh, thank you one and all for coming to Vicky, Emma, Lucy, Tinkerbell, Deb, Chris, Graham, that effing drive, an audience with the king, Ron Janko, and user. Hello. Hello, Lindsay. See, you're in the photos of my titles. Did you see that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, lovely to see you all, folks. Thank you for coming. I'm going to turn off the recording now.